Hi, I'm George with AmateurLogic.tv, and I'm talking today with Clyde Hanley, a broadcast engineer from the Cincinnati, Ohio area. Clyde, we really appreciate you taking out time to talk with us today. Glad to do it. It's my honor. And and you've worked in broadcasting most of your life? All of my life. All Nin- of your life. Started in 1941. I was a co-op student from the University of Cincinnati. My first job was to work down at WLW, midnight to 8 a.m., running the old 500,000 watts during the experimental period. Tell me about that. That had to have been that was some a real, experience. It was a real thrill. At midnight, we'd sign off of 50 kilowatts. We'd fire up the 500 kilowatt. The, the fire-up procedure took about a half hour before midnight. we turn on the, on the air and the water on all the... There were three power amplifiers in series. There were about 200 kilowatts each. There were two modulator units and one power supply. And then we used the 50 kilowatt as a driver for the three power amplifiers. And a 50 kilowatt, I mean, that's the biggest you can have on the air today. Yeah, well, we had... That was our driver. <laughs> and we had... We, we loaded that thing up at one night to 700,000 watts. Wow. And it was a real thrill. It's a real thrill if you're an amateur to dip your plate currents to 100 amperes. Boy, I bet. <laughs> you rock it through resonance, and that really felt good. What kind of voltage did the plate voltage did that 15 run? kilovolts. 15K. We had, we had 24 tubes. They were 898As. They were 100 kilowatts each. 7.5 kilowatts just to light the filament on each tube. And we had 30 gallons per minute of water to cool the anodes. Wow. A six phase on the filaments, seven and a half kilowatts. So what, what was your, your first job there? Well, I, at that time, to, to get the distilled water up to the plate anode voltage, we had to use Pyrex pipe. Mm-hmm. There were none of these ceramic isolating coils available at that time. And I was only about 100 pounds. I was the only guy who would fit down in the vault to stop the leaks in the Pyrex pipe. So uh, that was my main job. Then after we signed off, I would go through. We'd, we'd, we'd run the 500 kilowatts from midnight to 2 a.m., non-commercial. My job then was to go through and check for leaks in the water, feel every capacitor for heating, and the heated capacitor I'd have to change. Check all the connections. That took about two hours, and then I'd have a bite to eat. Wow, so you'd have to climb up inside the transmitter to do all uh, this. Well, there were three power amplifier cubicles, two modulator cubicles, and the, the, the rectifier cubicle. And you'd have to move from one cubicle to the next and isolate each one. It was a, it was a fascinating job. I learned a lot about, it, about transmitters doing that. Oh, I bet. <laughs> did, did you use the, uh, I guess we called them the Jesus stick? to Hot sticks. Hot sticks, you had to short everything out before well, you... No, before you could get into a vault, you had to pull up a bar, and that mm-hmm. grounded all the high voltage in that cubicle. Okay. So they had some safety built oh, in. Oh, there was a lot of built-in safety on that, yes. That's the only, I guess, 500 kilowatt that, that RCA ever de- built in the U.S. Well, RCA, GE, and Westinghouse, all mm-hmm. three built it. Westinghouse built the, the cooling system and the power supply. Westinghouse... Our GE built the uh, transformers. Uh, RCA built the modulator. And by the way, our modulation transformers, we had two modulation transformers, 12 feet high, 8 feet in diameter. Wow. They were huge. 
Uh, did they have PCBs in them, you think? PCB oil? At that time, we didn't know what that was. Yeah, I know. <laughs> did you work with any of the engineers who were there when it was built? No, it was built in 1933 and 34. Mm-hmm. I didn't start until 41. Mm-hmm. It ran from 1934 to 1939 as a full-time operation, daytime, commercial. 1939, Senator Wheeler of Montana railroaded a resolution through the Senate limiting the power of broadcast stations to 50 kilowatts. And so we had to shut down from, for, from commercial operation, but we operated from midnight to 2 a.m., non-commercial. That's when I was involved. Mm-hmm. So you said you had to go in after the transmitter was shut down and filled for warm components. Did you ever find any? Oh, in? yeah. Every night you'd find something wrong. Really? Every night. And you'd have an explosion. In fact, the tower had, uh, had eight guy wires supporting the tower. You can see it down the mm-hmm. road. And if it got struck by lightning, the lightning would jump across the ball gaps on the guy wires. Well, the transmitter power was enough to, to maintain the ionization of the arc. So you had to shut the transmitter off to stop the arcs on the guy wires. So we had to build an electric, an electric eye pointing to one of the gaps in the base of the tower. When that flashed, it tripped the transmitter off to deionize the arcs. So it would sustain its own arc once oh, it yeah. got started. Once it got started, yes. It was ionized. So, What did you use for transmission line? How did you get 500 kilowatts to the base? Oh, it was easy. It was a 10-inch aluminum pipe with a 2-inch aluminum center conductor supported with Michaelex. Air dielectric, no gas, no pressure. So it was a 100-ohm line. But it was so, 10 inches in diameter. So what was the output impedance of the transmitter? Was it 100 ohms or was it 50 and you matched it down to the 100? Well, we went to a, to a 100 ohm line. We ran, the, the base impedance of the tower was 396 ohms. We ran about what, 11, 11, 11 amps at 50 kilowatts, 30 amps at 500 kilowatts. Mm. That's a lot of current, oh. a, lot, a lot of base current. Well, a lot of plate current when you get got well, Total plate current, 100 amperes. Yeah, yeah. Um, we, raised, we used to run 15 amps of grid current. Wow. <laughs> and and most transmitters, recent tube transmitters, wouldn't even run uh, 15 amps on the plate. Uh, most of our competition was 5 kilowatt and 250-watt mm-hmm. stations. Well, we had 24 tubes. That took 7.5 kilowatts each to run just, just to light the filaments. So, did you ever have any problems with rodents or, oh, yes. or anything? We had a bank of filter condensers in the power supply. The rodents would get across those and explode. Yeah, just find little pieces, I guess. Find pieces all over the basement. And we had delta Y breakers to start the transmitter up from a delta to a Y connection. Huh. So, you'd actually have to shift it during startup. To... Oh, yeah. You put on low voltage and mm-hmm. you shifted the delta Y breaker. I, I guess, the whole building shook when you did that. <laughs> I, at 500 kilowatts, I guess you really couldn't have a backup generator, could you? Oh no, we had two. We had a power source from Cincinnati Gas Electric from Dayton Power and Light, so we had two power sources coming in. Yeah, were, were there? Um, we, okay, we had our own substation. Wow. Were, were you fortunate enough that both of them never went down at the same time? That. During your period, you always had power from one or the other? Oh, yeah, so always had some power. We never had lots of power. What kind of matching network 
was there at the base of the tower. It was an L network. An L. L network. We went from the 100-ohm line to the 300-ohm, 371-ohm uh, base impedance of the tower. That's a pretty high base impedance. Well, it's a half-wave tower. Yeah, well, yeah. It's a half-wave tower. Now, I had heard stories that originally that tower was a little taller, and that was a problem. Yes, that was. tower was five-eighths of a wavelength tall at the beginning. When you have a five-eighths wavelength tower, you get good field at a mile in the horizontal plane, but you get a secondary lobe. That secondary lobe landed in Indianapolis and Columbus caused it and caused a distortion zone uh, during sunset period. So we had to take the flagpole off, dropped it from 831 feet to 708 feet, and went from a five-eighths tower to a half-wave tower. Wow. And, and that stopped the, distor- the distortion in Indianapolis and Columbus. And I guess those areas just were far enough out that that was cities you wanted to hit. Well, that's right. They were 100 miles out. And that secondary lobe hit the ionosphere and came right down 100 miles out. Hmm. And I guess counseled with the the main lobe. Oh, with the ground wave. Yeah. Caused caused the selective fading, as they called it. What about uh, nighttime operation? Was it... um, Did you get... I guess you would send out QSL cards, but did you get reports from from quite a distance? Australia, Australia. That's that's about as far as you can go, I think. We had consistent listeners in Southern California, but of course, at seven hundred kilocycles, your coverage during the summertime yes. is limited because of the atmospheric noise. Mm-hmm. We did an extensive study on atmospheric noise relationship to class of reception. Instead of going to actual millivolts per meter, we went to ISO service contours, constant signal-to-noise ratio. Mm-hmm. So we knew where the noise was. We measured atmospheric noise. We measured man-made noise in the cities. I bet the man-made noise now, today, would be so much higher than it was back then. Oh, yeah. That's really kind of killed AM with with every th- all the garbage we put out in the air today. That's right. We we had we went out to all different sized cities and measured man-made noise in the cities with a vehicle, and we come back and and correlate that to the population of the city. And if we knew the population, we knew what the man-made noise was. So we knew what strength of signal we had to get in there to to provide satisfactory coverage. We had three classes of coverage: A, B, and C. A served ninety percent of the time. 60% of the time and four, and 30% of the time for the three classes of service. And WLW is non-directional and, and always has been. And that's still the original tower. That's, well, that's we were there. directional in the vertical plane pattern only to protect our signal up to, to Toronto when we were interfering with, with KFRB and 690. In the vertical plane. Yeah, we had a null in the vertical plane pattern only. Fritz Leidorf designed that. We had two suppressor towers, several wavelengths away from the main area, and they just caused a null in the vertical plane pattern toward Toronto. So the ground wave was ground wave was, was non-directional. Still, yeah. Well, that's that's quite interesting. I guess that's probably the first time that had ever been done. See, I think it's the only the, the only, only time that was ever done. So that's that's an old tower. I don't remember what year WLW came on the air. 1934. The tower was built in 33. 33. That's two Blonox H40s back-to-back. Oh, yeah. Bottom one's upside down. Bottom one's upside down. And 
There's this one, I guess. There's still the one in Nashville. Yeah, WSM. I, are there any more left? There's one in the blood in New York, W. It's got a smaller tire on the bottom and a taller one on the top. Um, it's one in New York, and I don't know where the other one's at. Yeah. Uh, the stations I used to work for, we had some old Blonox towers used as STLs. They were only 125 foot tall, but they were looked in that same style with four legs. Yeah. The old, the old design. Yeah. But those things really stood the test. They sure did. They were used for, uh, in the 40s, uh, the, the late 40s and 50s, they were used for TV towers. The, this particular one here? No, no. Oh, the, some the, of the them Blonde Oxy. Yeah, yeah. The, the old Channel 5 tower was a Blonde Oxy. Uh, tower just half of this one, 500 mm-hmm. feet. Wow. And how big are those guy wires? I, I have Those guys were tower. about two inches in diameter. The, the breaker insulators, or four breaker insulators in each guy wire, mm-hmm. they weighed 600 pounds each. Boy. They were big. Yeah. They're about this big. And there's, there's resistors across those. There's there? drain resistors across them. What else we did, we put a wooden jig in each guy wire and put a hard steel slug two inches up from there in a slot. After we get hit by lightning... We take that that slug out and measure how much it was magnetized from the lightning current going down the guy wire. Multiply that by eight eight guy wires, then ch- check the base one, figure out what the amplitude of the, the lightning it was. We calibrate that as high as forty thousand amperes. Wow! Lightning current. Then we we also had some uh, a steel ball on the top of the tower. It's all full of holes from lightning hits. We took it up to GE and calibrated that. Came up with 40,000 amperes. <laughs> at, at that height, you're going to catch just about any storm that comes through. We like caught this. a lot of them. We had 250 kilowatts of audio. Two, 250, 250 kilowatts. kilowatts of audio to modulate the transmitter. Yeah. Yeah, I guess, yeah, you'd have to. And But was that enough to get 100%? Just barely. Just barely. Barely. It was tough. Did... Did you have compressors and limiters back during that day? Well, what we did, uh, maybe I shouldn't say this, but when you shift from 50 kilowatts to 500 kilowatts, the the automatic volume control receiver compensated for most of that. People couldn't tell the difference in the primary coverage zone. So what we'd do is before we'd shift, we'd cut the modulation down slowly. So by the time we were shifting, we were only modulating about 50%. And then we came on with the 500 and 100% modulation. And you'd jump in your seat. You'd know that it had been turned on. We knew that it was turned on. <laughs> yes, we yes we had automatic homemade automatic amplifiers. We'd actually mm-hmm. forget how they work now. My mind's not clear as it was in those days. So how was? Of course, you know the the studio was was located in Cincinnati. Studio was in Cincinnati. Yes. How did you get the audio from the studio out to the transmitter? Telephone lines. Equalized telephone lines. Then when we went to High Fidelity Transmitter, the the cathode system, Mm -hmm. we had to put in a microwave to get the signal out there in High Fidelity form. That that was an interesting transmitter. Really? We were flat from... we We had the audio under control from two cycles to 600 kilocycles. Audio through the modulator under control. Wow. And shaped... We had 50 dB of feedback, 48 dB of feedback, and we were flat 
from 20 cycles to 20 kilocycles in that transmitter with about 0.5% intermodulation distortion. That is tremendous. Well, that was a lot of work. So what did you cut off the top end audio at? Did you let 20 kilohertz oh, go yes, through? Oh, yes, sure. I'll bet that sounded great on some of those old radios. It did. Uh, those old crystal sets, we had real broadband crystal detectors. Fetting into a good iFi amplifier. And so you had to have a man there on site, uh, I guess with it being a 50 kilowatt, 24 hours a day there was a man there responsible for taking meter readings every 30 minutes? Every 30 minutes. We had two men on duty because of the danger of the place. Mm-hmm. We had two men always on duty. You were just telling me about the, the hi-fi transmitter there. Who built that? Rockwell, what? Jim Rockwell, my boss. Okay, so that was a, a custom-built? Custom-built cathode, non-ferrous. No audio went through a transformer. Really? Yeah, it's a totally non-ferrous audio all the way through to the output. Gee. That's, why, that's how we could get the low distortion. Yeah. And, and now there's, I don't know, I guess maybe three or four transmitters in that building, just different, different generations? Type. That's right. So the original transmitter was that 50-kilowatt Western Electric? Western Electric, yeah. And, uh, 1005 was a serial number. Wow. And, and then you went to the one Rockwell built? Well, we modified that old Western Electric several times, changed the tubes in it, changed the tank circuit, changed mm-hmm. the modulator. So it was a it was a composite by the time it, but yeah, it retired. Yeah. And and what did you go to next? I I was down there until we built this place in 1942. Mm-hmm. I came up here from 42 to until uh, we got this on the air. Then I got involved in television. Mm-hmm. And I built WINS in New York City, and then I built uh, several television Cincinnati, Dayton, Columbus. Indianapolis Television, San Antonio, and then the seven stations in Saudi Arabia in 1969. Did, did you ever work with Rockwell? Oh, yeah. I replaced Rockwell. Oh, you did? Yes, he was my boss. He and I okay. were very close. I worked hand-in-hand hand with him all the time. How was it to work with him? Charming, yeah. Man. He th- he, we, we said he, th- he used to think like a vacuum tube. <laughs> and he, he was a bulldog. He wouldn't give up. He'd try and do something that wouldn't work. He would never give up. He said, it's got to be, it's got to be able to, be, to finish this. His theory was that di- the difficult we do immediately, the impossible takes a little while longer. <laughs> and and you worked with uh, Crosley as well? Well, that was, was Crosley. I, uh, Powell Crosley hired me. And uh, Powell Crosley was around in 1945. Mm-hmm. And then it was, it was bought by Avco Corporation. So I didn't get to know Powell very well. Yeah, but you did work with Rockwell for a number of years. Well, I worked with Rockwell until 1977, until he died. I replaced him. I took his job. We we tried to sell our patent to Gates, Mm -hmm. and it was too complicated for the average operator. Yeah. So we didn't didn't go very far with it. It was a difficult transmitter to operate. It was good. Oh, yeah. Those those specs are unheard of for... AM, I guess even today you won't. You Not won't an AM. In fact, those are even good for FM. Yeah. We had 65 dB noise level. You left WLW for, why did you leave there? I didn't leave. Oh, you didn't? I was there for 40 years. Okay. 
Never left. Never left. Couldn't get rid of me. Well, what about VOA? How did that play well, out? Well, that was Crosley's project. Yeah. That was done by the Crosley engineers. We okay. designed this place. And so you worked at, at both facilities. I worked and... down there and worked up here, yes. I did the antenna work here, transmission lines and antennas. We developed the re-entering Roundwick antenna system. You familiar with that? Yeah, yeah. I'm just sorry that it's not out here. We can look at it, but that was quite a system. Tell me a little bit about how that... Well, what we did, we had it down the road. We had two shortwave antennas down at Mason and a 75-kilowatt transmitter and a 50-kilowatt shortwave transmitter. But those were small antennas. We used lump parameters to phase the feed line, return line, back into the input. And it was very, very sensitive, very delicate, very difficult to tune. So we built four more antennas across the road larger antennas. We started using lump parameters on those. And I went to, I was in college doing well at that time, studying under Professor Rock, uh, Professor Osterbrock. He taught a course in transmission line theory. He said, now there's a beer can theorem. I said, what in the world is a beer can theorem? He said, well, you can hang anything on a transmission line, even beer cans, go a quarter wave down, put the same disturbance on the line, and you won't upset the match of the line, but you'll change the phase rotation between the two disturbances. Huh. So, gee, that'll work well with our rhombics. So the rhombics we built here were phased with, with matching stubs instead of lump parameters. Huh. We had K-factors. We had increased the efficiency, the radiation efficiency of a rhombic from 60% to 98%. Well, that's a significant well, increase. Well, when you throw away 50, 40, 50% of your power in a termination, yeah. just save that and feed it back in the input again. So, so that you were feeding from the output back to the input of the the antenna, antenna. circuit. Yeah, and it just by do, by phasing it correctly, uh, you could just phasing it impedance matching it correctly. Yeah, you could f re return that power to the common point and put it around the antenna again. So, what kind of gain would you get out of an antenna like that? Twenty dB. That's significant. With two hundred mm -hmm. kilowatts. Yeah. It lays a pretty heavy beam. Yeah. And, of course, VOA would change frequencies throughout the day. Well, we, we had these set up with stubs that we can set each antenna up for four frequencies. And we had four certain frequencies assigned to us. We had antennas were in different groups. There was an A group, B group, and a C group, different sizes. We had a, a 6 megahertz to, to 9 9 to 11, 11 to 15, no, 6, let me think, 6 to 11, 11 to 15. We had two transmission lines running out to three antennas. We'd switch a transmission line between the low band and the high band antennas. But then we had to come back here and match that line, real broadband step transformers, because we kept our VSWR under 1.1 to 1, all the way back to the transmitter output. Wow. So the switching uh, matrix network out here was that swick, strictly switching the antennas, or did it also switch the tuning networks? Oh no, just the antennas. Just the antennas. It took the 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 output of six transmitters and fed them into any one of twenty four antennas. It was a crossbar switch. Mm -hmm. you, you're familiar with the old crossbars. Yeah. Three hundred ohms, and we have to go from three hundred ohm output of the switch to the five hundred twenty five ohm transmission line through stepped impedance transformers. 
And I, I've seen the transmission line down here. I've never seen anything quite like that above that uh, continental that's down there now. Oh, that pipe? Yeah. Well, we had the 300 ohm lines were number about quarter inch diameter copper weld, mm -hmm. three inches apart vertically and 10 inches separate, so four wires, about like this. That was a 300 ohm line to feed out the, the selector mm -hmm. switch. Selector switch was uh, three, three, was three, three quarter inch copper pipe on seven inch, 10 inch diameter, 10 inch separation. That was through, that was a very, very low VSWR all the way through that. When the war came on, I guess that's really when the government got interested in, in bringing the Voice of America online. How long did it take to plan all of this out and then to construct it and get it on the air? President Roosevelt called a meeting in just several months after Pearl Harbor because we had only 13 shortwave transmitters. The Axis countries had over 100. Mm -hmm. And he said we're not physically equipped to engage in psychological warfare. We need to build some heavy-duty transmitters. So he called a meeting in Washington with RCA, Westinghouse, General Electric, NBC, CBS, Crosley, and other manufacturers. And our chairman of the board, Jimmy Schaus, went to that meeting at the White House. During a break at the meeting, he called Rockwell and said, Rockwell, can you build 200 kilowatt transmitters for shortwave? Rockwell says, hell, I don't know, but I'll give it a hell of a try. Yeah. That's all Schaus needed. He went back and committed us to build six 200,000 watt transmitters and 24 antennas. And we got a contract on one sheet of paper to build this place. Wow. One sheet of paper. From the time we got the contract, to, from the time we broke ground, to the time we got the first transmitter on the air was one year. That is moving Now, there on. were no tubes available for their transmitters, so we had to send Jim Hollis, our transmitter guy, to Nutley, New Jersey, the federal tube plant in Nutley, New Jersey, to design the tubes that would fit in the transmitter. And you did all this in a year? One year. Boy, I guess that you had a really large crew. Eight engineers. Eight engineers, and, and then well, and three and three of us did work on transmitters. So only seven of them worked on the transmitters. We, the three of us worked on the antenna systems. Um, who who built the towers? What brand of towers did you have here? Well, they were poles when we built it. They were just wooden okay. poles, butt spliced, hundred eighty foot tall. After they were butt spliced. But then in 1951, we put the curtain up. The curtain was, those, were, those weren't blonde ox, those were, I don't remember who the manufacturer was, but that went up in 1951 during the Army McCarthy hearings. Okay, but so, so back during the war period then, that was wood poles? Wood poles. Wow. A 180-foot wood pole? No, they were, no, they were 90-foot poles butt spliced. Okay. We built a, Sleeve about the size of this table, about this big in diameter, and put the butt of each pole into it, and they were butt spliced together to reach it. Mm -hmm. They were guided in the center, the top. This crossbar switch out here, that's mostly all the original wood from... That's the original wood. We built a model of that, scale model of that, before we built the switch. That's quite a complicated looking rig out there. Did you ever have any arcs or anything? Oh, like yeah. Every once in a while you get... Uh, switch it didn't close tight and it burned. 
We, in fact, we actually set up demonstrations at night because arcs. We could get ten feet of flame coming off the transmission lines. <laughs> That's pretty good. And and so WLW is just right down the road here. Right. I mean, you can step out here and see the tower just really good. Was there ever any interference from one to the other? Did you ever have RF? I from, from, say, VOA getting into gear at WLW? Well, the problem that we had, we were concerned that when we put the curtain up, we would affect the, 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 the mm-hmm. non-directional pattern at WLW. Mm-hmm. So we worked with the Air Force, got a helicopter, and did a lot of research work and found it was a minimal disturbance. We did a lot of work on that. But, yeah, well, when we built our shortwave antennas down the road with WLW at 50 kilowatts, we had a lot of trouble with it. We couldn't. Teach the electricians to work barehanded instead of gloves. <laughs> they always want to use gloves. Yeah. Go right through the glove. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I had an a engineer one time helping me with a directional antenna system. It was Ted Hightecker, worked for Earl Cullum. Well, I knew Earl Cullum. Yeah. Texas. They, they designed the, uh, the AM directional system we had at the station I worked at, uh, WJDX. And, of course, he did the typical old Cullum uh, phaser. It was on a, in a brick building on the wall down there at the center tower rather than being in cabinets. But uh, it, the thing had been out, and nobody was able to bring it back in, so we hired uh, Ted Hightaker to come in and help us put that thing back in. And he wanted me to climb the center tower, which was on during the day, at uh, 5 kilowatts. It was on 620, so it... You know, it got out pretty good, but uh, he wanted me to go check the sample loop on it. And I said, well, I can't touch that tower. It's five kilowatts. He said, oh, there's nothing to it. Uh, get your wood ladder and lean up against it. And I said, okay. And he said, now take these, take this pair of pliers. I took a crescent wrench all the time. Crescent wrench. And he said, just grab it with that and then just Hold break on. the paint and just go on up it. And oh. It worked. If I'd had on gloves, though, that wouldn't have been so good, would it? No, we sure wouldn't. Have. But we climbed the 500 kilowatt tower. Really? In the day while I was on the air, with a big wooden ladder. Gee, that's uh, of course the FCC wouldn't let you go anywhere near doing something like that today. They've uh, tightened up the, you know, RF rules and all. But um, so you worked at WOW. You came over here, you built the VOA across the field. Did did you work at any of the other VOA sites that no, were built? No, just this okay, one. Okay, just this one. And were those others built around the same time? About the same time, yes. About the same GE time. built one, and and NBC built one. We were in Dixon, Delano, California. Brentwood, Brentwood. Uh, there was one in Jersey. One of the interesting things about the the reentering aerobics, back during the Cold War, State Department called and asked me if I would entertain the chief engineer from Broadcasting Corporation of China in Taipei, Taiwan, who wanted to reach the free Chinese behind the bamboo curtain, was going to build a facility like this in Taiwan to broadcast their voice into the behind the bamboo curtain. So I said, fine. I said, but classified. What can I tell him? I said, open the floodgates. Anything he wants to know, help him. Hmm. So the first thing I asked him was, what do you want to learn about? He said, I'd like to learn about the reentering rhombic antennas you designed during the war. I said, we never published any papers on them. They were classified. How'd you learn about them? He said, I learned about them through the underground. 
He knew my name and all the guys that worked with me on him. Wow. He said he was in Manchuria. Gee. So uh, there, there's were guard towers up here at uh, WLW to, to protect it during the war. And I guess the same thing here at VOA. Well, we, we, we had guards up in the tower here. That's what the tower yeah. was for. High-powered rifles, searchlights. Do you know if they ever had to shoo anybody off? That well, we all call them at night, but then you every once in a while during the night you'd hear some gunfire, but they were shooting rabbits. Oh, <laughs> but uh, we would we had one tower was bombed here during the Cold War by some mentally dis- deranged person. We had two bullet holes in the side of the building here, but that's all I know about. Nothing serious. Is there any other uh, stories that uh, come to mind, funny or, or just uh, scary or, or different about WOW or VOA? Just something you might remember through the years? Well, we had a. Well, one of the technicians who worked here was bald as a cue ball. And the transmission lines going out the side of the building here were 300 ohms at 200 kilowatts each. He was on top of a truck. He went under one of the transmission lines arc to his head, just burnt all the skin off the top of his head. We rushed wow. him down to Doc Batchy down here, bandaged him up. After we took the bandage off, he started growing hair. <laughs> oh, I wonder if anybody ever tried to patent that method uh, of hair growth. Well, we had enough trouble with that with the Crosley's Exervac. You know about Crosley yeah. Exervac? Well, Crosley was concerned about losing his hair. So he designed this machine that a big cup on the top of your head that would suck vacuum, then pressure to massage your scalp. It's called the Crosley Exervac. He put those in barbershops. You get a Crosley Exervac treatment. Well, the Federal Trade Commission got on him for being questionable practice. Mm -hmm. And so he had to separately incorporate the broadcast facility. So that's how we became a separate corporation, because that damn Crosley Exervac. (laughs) Do you think the Exervac actually worked? Well, Well, they sent one to us, and we said the only way it would work if you get the suction high enough, would suck the hair off your chest and pull it out the top of your head. <laughs> I know uh, Crosley built radios, and he built WLW, was instrumental in VOA. Did he have any other projects going on besides the Oh, yeah, the an airport. He built airplanes, built cameras. Uh, he built, we, we owned WINS in New York City. Broadcast the Yankees. And... Uh, he had a big home in Florida. He built the auto across the automobile. Wow! He was a he 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 was more interested in automobiles than he was in broadcast. WLW VOA. What did you do next? Well, I built, built a bunch of television stations. Uh, let me think. The VOA. WINS, I was spent three years in New York City building WINS. I used a helicopter in 1949 to measure the pattern because we had wow. re-radiation from all the other towers out in the swamps. That was the first time we used a helicopter for, for field intensity measurements. And I guess that's the only way you could get to those points. Is we didn't get the points. We flew radios. We didn't okay. stop and measure at measuring points. Uh Came back here, put, installed a curtain in 1951. Got that going. And built some television stations, Cincinnati, Dayton, Columbus, and Indianapolis. Did you like television as well as you liked radio? 
Well, I liked radio because all the time we we had three full orchestras mm -hmm. in radio. We had live talent. We had a hundred employees at the radio station. Wow. Well, it was a big station, and, and radio was big. We did a million dollars a month in business. I remember. Gee. And and in dollars oh, in those years. I spent a lot of time in Washington, representing the broadcast industry on the Clear Channel Broadcasting Service, then the Association of Maximum Service Telecasters. I was chairman of their engineering committee for about fifteen years. Okay. Uh, what was that? Difficult to do to to keep the channels clear. Was the FCC trying to break it up? And they were trying to break us up and duplicate mm -hmm. all the channels, and I was trying to maintain them. And we didn't mm -hmm. we didn't make it. When you got into television, was it uh, was it brand new at that point? Oh yeah, it's nineteen forty nine. Forty nine. Forty nine. So everything was black well, and white. Yeah, we started in nineteen thirty eight. Built a from the old the old four forty line standards at a television station, the Crew Tower. With a biconical dipole, in 1938, when the war came along, we turned that off. After the war, we turned it back on. Then, after 1949, 48-49, we got the new standards, converted that to a 525 line system. We built our own cameras. You did. Of video cons. The old, the old iconoscope. Remember the iconoscope. Just barely. I never saw one. I, I got one downstairs. Oh, really? Cool. Iconoscope camera. It's a trapezoidal picture because they scan it from an angle. And we had to put so much light on the subject, you could smell their wool, the wool in their clothes scorching. <laughs> they couldn't stand under the lights more than three or four minutes. Wow. But it, it got television started. We, we got television started. And then we bought the RCA cameras with the Old first image orthicons. Television took quite a bit more bandwidth. W was that a challenge getting the antenna systems and? Well, that antenna? was in, that was interesting because RCA did a real good job on coming up with the antenna system. Uh, I did a lot of work on, on establishing the accurate ratio of, of visual power to sound power. Oh, you did, yeah, yes. because we used to think you had to have as much oral as you did visual. That's right, and I got it down to 10% because when you ran 50% oral power with a color picture, that sound carrier interfered with the subcarrier, and you got some grainy pictures. Yeah. So I got that picture down. So I, I got a lot of papers I wrote on that. Tell, tell us how that works. That's real interesting that you would think you'd, you'd have to have the same amount of power to go the same distance, but you yeah. don't. No, it's kilowatt. It's kilowatts per kilocycle of bandwidth. So if you compress it, you don't need that much power. If you spread 50 kilowatts over 6 megahertz, that's not much per megahertz. Mm -hmm. So you can have a little bit of... In fact, I ran a picture-to-sound power ratio test one year, 256 to 1, 256 times more visual power. And nobody could tell the difference. Wow. So that, uh, that was quite a bit of power savings and tubes and everything That's else. That's right. In fact, I shut the sound transmitter down one day and multiplexed the sound carrier through the visual transmitter. And nobody could tell the difference. Wow. It's hard to keep the the, the tubes working right because every time you you drive a sink pulse through, you'd cut the sound carrier off a little bit. Yeah. So you get a little bit of buzz. That's pretty amazing. 
That because uh, that really wasn't that long ago that that we were running the same amount of power right. on both. No, we ran two to one. The two. initial starts was twice a. If you, if you if you had a hundred kilowatts of video, you had fifty kilowatts of sound. Okay. And I got it down to ten percent or less. And today it, it's all digital, so there's no separate aural or visual transmitter. It's right. all. All just one, and a fraction of the power of what we ran in. A much better picture. Much better picture. I'm not sure. I think the jury's still out on if you got the same coverage area you had before. At least where I live, it, you know, I know some people that lost coverage after the conversion. But uh, everybody had an antenna outdoors back in those days. That's right. I guess. Have you always worked in broadcasting, Clyde, or did you no, work after- in some other areas? Uh, in 1975, our parent company was in Cartervision. Remember Cartervision and Seaboard Finance? I'm not sure I remember that. Well, Cartervision was the first cartridge television device ever made. Okay. They invested a ton of money in that. They invested a lot of money in Seaboard Finance, which is a, 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 a Canadian financing company. Both of those went belly up. They had a liquidate some of the comp- some of their companies and they decided to sell broadcasting. So I was involved in the liquidation of our company. So I spent two years selling the assets of EFCO Broadcasting Corporation. Raised about $300 million. And I thought, this is fun. I think I'll do this for business. So I got in the investment banking business. I spent the next 15 years brokering radio and television stations. So I guess that was a little more profitable than being an engineer. It sure was. <laughs> it sure was. Yeah, that's um, but but that's part of the industry. I mean, you've got to have all of these pieces to make it work. Yeah, and I was the only broker that could read a schematic diagram. <laughs> and I, I bet you could go out and look at a facility and tell if it was really worth what. I appraised television stations without even looking at them. You could, sure, yeah. because the amount of equipment in a station is insignificant to the value of the property. Wow. It's it's in the uh, advertising the li- revenue. The license, the revenue, yes. Yeah. So I could appraise a station by just looking at the books, without even looking at the station. Did you like that line of work? I enjoyed it thoroughly. Maybe I made a lot of money. Yeah. So did you retire from that, or retired from that? Well, I retired from that. Then I went into the appraisal business at home, and I closed that company. Did it at home and did uh, special consulting work, a lot of uh, uh, depositions. And then when I was 80, 83 years old, I hung it all up. Hung it all up. And and you were instrumental in uh, getting J-Corps. Uh, I was involved with it. Involved with it. But I wasn't instrumental. Okay. I was not one of the prime movers of that. Okay. So what do you, what do you think about broadcasting's future? With the Internet here today... Uh, do you think broadcasting's got what it's what it's going to take to hang in there, or do you think we're we we need to pay attention? Well, I think we're going to have trouble. I see more and more advertising showing up on cable network stations, mm-hmm. and that's all advertising that would have been on the on the over the air mm-hmm. station. So I think it's going to be a rough road. I think so. It's going to be a real rough road. Yeah, because they, the advertiser can usually buy this. This time on cable, a little bit cheaper than they could buy. A lot cheaper. Yeah. I think I think 
I think AM radio has a place, but uh, for broadband coverage like clear channel stations. What do you think about digital radio? That you know, I'm, I'm really not up on that. I, yeah. The parade passed me when that came along. Yeah. You didn't have to worry about that. I didn't one. worry about that. Yeah. I'm glad I'm not an engineer today because I couldn't design one of these cameras. No, <laughs> I couldn't either. I can barely figure out how to turn it on and run it, but it'll pretty much run itself if you can ever get it on. But no, the parade went by, went past me a long time ago. Yeah. So I'm glad I'm not an engineer these days. Oh, it was a great career. It, it it was, and it sounds like you were you were right on the cutting edge for all these decades. It was a lot of fun, particularly the 500 kilowatt and developing this facility. That was a lot of real basic raw engineering. I've heard stories. I don't know if they're true about people hearing the radio station in their bed springs. Oh yes, and stuff like a lot of that crosstalk yeah. and fence posts. Fence posts, yeah. downspouts. We had we had a crew going around just putting in uh, self-topping screws and downspouts to to make a connection so there wouldn't be any yeah. cross cross modulation there. So uh, let me ask from an engineering standpoint: when something that, like that occurs, is that energy wasted that could have been broadcast out over the air? Is that actually being wasted there at that downspout? Well, that's, or? that's a small amount. Yeah. Like the ground system. We've only got 58 radios in the ground system at WLW. Really? Sandwave Tower doesn't need a ground system. Yeah, true. Okay? Yeah. People think you need 120 radios. Yeah. Not necessarily in a half-wave tower. Yeah, totally different design. If I, if I would copper plate all the property we owned, I couldn't increase, improve the efficiency by more than 2%. Gee. What, what about the cooling system up there. I, I see those old ponds are still there in front of WLW. Yes, those are raw water cooling. We we cooled the tubes with distilled water. Mm-hmm. And then we, we'd run that through a Westinghouse heat exchanger, boiler type heat exchanger. Pump the raw water through the heat exchanger out to the ponds to cool it. We had a lot of heat to, to dissipate. Well, well here, here's the thing. To get 500 kilowatts output, you need three times that input. So the, Twice that is going away in heat somewhere. Yeah. So you got a megawatt of heat you got to get rid of. See, it's, and it's a shame you couldn't use that heat for something. I guess you could heat the building with it. Well, we did heat. We heated this building. When we shut the transmitters down, there's no heat in this building. Yeah. Yeah, that's what we, we talked about that with Dave Snyder when we were here last year and some of the damage that came from not having any heat in here. Was uh, VOA, did you have to have uh, cooling ponds here or the technology oh, no. at a point that that wasn't necessary? No, we had radiators. Radiators. Mm-hmm. Then, then, then they went to the steam tubes, the tubes that actually boiled into steam, condensed mm-hmm. back to water. Yeah, I, I remember seeing that. That was really interesting. I didn't do much on the inside of the building. All my work was outside. Yeah. And t- crossbar switch. Impedance transformers, transmission lines, and antennas. Was there much maintenance on, on that? We had two men full-time just to maintain the antennas. Full-time. So would would they have a regular schedule of things, they, maintenance they had to do to make sure that it that everything was going well, to be? There, there was always something broke. Yeah. An, an insulator cracked. Transmission line 
to break. They were busy. I, I imagine so. But uh, they did a great job on this facility. Same with WLW. Both of these are iconic places. No, Nothing else like them in the world. They're a lot of fun to work. I guarantee you they're bound to have been. Clyde, we really appreciate you talking uh, with us. This has been great to, to hear some of these stories from you and uh, learn a little bit about the history of broadcasting from somebody who was actually here through a lot of it. Well, I got this all documented on a video, a DVD. I'll give you a copy. We'd love to see it. Thank you. Thank you, Clyde. Should we say amen? Oh, uh, no. What, what was the thing the, uh, you have to say for the nuns to leave? Go on, PCS is mended? Yeah. There you go. <laughs> Remember that? <laughs> <laughs> he told me a good story about that a minute ago. Oh, yeah.